Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. So wow, I finally uh, finished and released that uh, that Aleister Crowley documentary. Uh, man, was that brutal. It ended up being about an hour and 40 minutes of scripted material. By far the longest scripted episode I've ever done. I'm usually going on about how short the scripted episodes end up being because they end up being very polished and streamlined. All you have to do is kind of, you know, read through the script and record yourself and that's it, you know. But yeah, that one ended up being almost two hours. Uh, I basically hid myself away like a uh, hermit or some medieval scribe and hammered away at it until it was done. Uh, There are times when I didn't think I'd ever uh, finish it. And I might try to make an abridged version for people who just don't have the patience or desire for, you know, a kind of uh, an amateur two hour long uh, podcast documentary or whatever. Uh, I probably being too hard on myself using the uh, using the adjective or descriptor amateur because I, I actually think it was a pretty tight documentary. I think I had my ducks in a row as far as uh, my research went, etc. Um, but you know what I mean, almost two hours. That's kind of asking a lot of uh, listeners, I guess. Um, so I, I might try to do one that's more in the ballpark of 15 to 20 minutes. I'm sure if I was to excise the majority of those excerpts, from Alistair Crowley's uh, biography, The Confessions, <laughs> that would probably shave things down by uh, by at least an hour alone, you know? So uh, I might try to, uh, try to do something along those lines. Um, for my fellow weirdos out there, maybe, you know, my fellow skeptics who also, uh, despite being skeptics, are interested in kind of weird and lurid topics, even things having to do with the occult, etc. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that, uh, that extremely long documentary. Um, if not, uh, you know, I apologize <laughs> for you guys who uh, come here mostly just to hear me kind of riff on... Um, religious news stories from an atheistic point of view. My apologies for subjecting you to that uh, that two-hour-long journey into the occult. <laughs> and what a strange, dark journey it was, the life of Aleister Crowley. Um, I know my friend Crocoduck, who I always mention on the show, isn't a big fan of Crowley. I, I wonder what he thought of it, because I still touch on some things that he's interested in, like uh, the... Kabbalah and um, the book The Magician, uh, which was inspired by Crowley. So it'll be uh, be interesting to see what he thinks. Um, but anyway, I-, I was almost content to just sit back on my laurels and consider that the episode of the week. Uh, but then I thought, mm, I- I'll release a kind of more standard episode of the week in doubt as well, because there were a few things in the news or that grab my attention that I want to uh, talk about. And of course, the big story of the day is that horrible mass shooting in New Zealand. Uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, two different mosques were targeted. Uh, I believe the total as of today, yesterday it was 49 dead. Today, uh, they're saying 50. Um, I think the number of the wounded is in the 40s. 
supposedly, um, I thought I heard that there were more than one shooter at first. Was it just one shooter now? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but a, a white supremacist, a white nationalist type. Um, yeah, I think as of now, they are saying it was just one shooter. He released some kind of long manifesto, uh, supposedly chock full of all sorts of references to, you know, meme, online meme culture, etc. Uh, and a really disturbing detail is that he supposedly streamed the shooting. Um, it, it was interesting. Last night I watched a video from The Amazing Atheist. And we all know how The Amazing Atheist can be usually. I mean, he's characteristically really kind of abrasive, almost intentionally offensive, nihilistic at, at times. This is one of those moments where he kind of let the mask slip, and he seemed genuinely disturbed and moved by uh, this incident or tragedy, whatever the proper term is. And he also talked about it on his video podcast on YouTube, Deep Fat Fried, that, that he does with his brother and his friend. And he did admit to having watched at least a portion of the video the stream, and he said, uh, as you could probably imagine, it was pretty disturbing, and it came across, it, it almost had the feel of a first-person shooter video game or something like that. Uh, the difference, obviously, being that these weren't pixels, these were real flesh-and-blood human beings being, uh, being massacred. And uh, I think his brother and his friend basically said, you know, they hadn't watched it. They had absolutely no interest in watching that. And it's strange. I think not that long ago, I kind of caught myself thinking how, fortunately, it's been a long time since I had to cover, you know, Islam on the show in regards to, you know, some kind of Islamic terror attack. Because remember, maybe like a couple of years ago or so, it seemed like almost every other week there was some kind of sickening Islamic extremist terror attack. It just seemed to never end. And of course, now we have the inverse. In this case, we have uh, a, a white supremacist, uh, according to, you know, this guy's own words, his manifesto, etc. His admiration for mass shooter Anders Breivik, or however you uh, pronounce his name, and I think just another disturbing detail is I think through Brivik's lawyer that this guy was actually in, in contact with Anders uh, Brivik or Brevik. I'm back through the magic of editing. I'm pretty sure I got that wrong. The shooter did claim to have established contact with Brevik, but if said contact even did occur, supposedly his lawyer didn't facilitate the communication. The lawyer is saying that it's unlikely the communication ever occurred in the first place. And uh, so this time, yeah, white supremacists senselessly slaughtering uh, Muslims, people who just happen to be Muslim. And I guess, you know, the common denominator would be tribalism, people killing other human beings because of uh, difference in uh, skin color, ethnicity, religious beliefs, ideology, etc. Uh, just indescribably awful stuff. And to be honest, I feel like I, I don't even really know what to say about it or what I can say, because, I mean, the biggest point you can make is something you would hope that everyone knows, that 
you shouldn't slaughter other living, breathing human beings just because you don't like their skin color or their religion. Uh, I mean, what the hell more can you say than that? Um, and I think the scary thing is, is that, you know, they'll just always be, you know, despite the fact that I think most people are at the end of the day, relatively decent and would never do something like this. I think there'll always be these kind of bad apples or these unstable individuals out there who are capable of this kind of stuff. And it doesn't take much to get the job done. All they need is, uh, you know, a weapon and uh, a, a target, you know. And then, of course, uh, we can get to the whole gun debate. What types of firearms and firearm accessories should be available to the citizenry, etc. And that whole debate, as important as it is, I mean, that... I personally find it just so exhausting and disappointing because we never seem to come out of it with any productive, helpful, common-sense solutions. Uh, the whole thing just usually seems to devolve into this partisan back and forth with, uh, you know, the whole the subject of guns becoming this partisan football. Um, inevitably, the talking heads and politicians just seem to get mired in arguments over the, the nature or proper interpretation of the Second Amendment, etc. And uh, we never get anywhere. We just wait until the next uh, mass shooting and then it's uh, wash, rinse, repeat, you know. And of course, it should be noted once again that surprisingly, this time the mass shooting wasn't in America. This was New Zealand. And to be honest, I know next to nothing about New Zealand's gun laws, how strict they are regarding firearms, whether this shooter acquired his guns or gun or guns, plural, um, legally or not. I know that Australia, of course, uh, really cracked down on firearms after uh, following a horrible mass shooting that they experienced. What was that, back in the 90s? I'm working from memory. I think it was, uh, was it uh, the Port Arthur massacre, I think? And then there's also the mental health component. We have to, you know, try to do everything in our power to detect these people uh, to, to get and keep them on the radar uh, before they can slip by and commit an act like this. And by mental health, I'm not even necessarily referring to some kind of really severe or acute uh, psychiatric condition like schizophrenia or some other kind of condition that uh, brings about a break with reality or whatever. Uh, I'm talking also about mental and emotional well-being or issues, um, trying to detect people who seem to have misanthropic tendencies, etc. People who maybe, you know, seem to fit the profile of a possible mass shooter, trying to get them help or whatever as early as possible. And as far as culture goes, you know, it's interesting, like I was kind of darkly joking earlier, you know, surprisingly, this didn't happen in America. But this guy did seem to be influenced by American culture. He was kind of into the whole kind of right wing meme culture thing, the whole MAGA thing. Um, he, 
I, I think he said something, I'm paraphrasing, where he didn't agree with all of Trump's policies, but he liked Trump because of how racially divisive he viewed him as being. And obviously, at the end of the day, it's hard to pin this guy's actions on another human being, uh, whether it be as much as I dislike him, Donald Trump, or the members of whatever little meme-infested echo chamber this guy was operating in. But at the same time, stuff like this doesn't occur in a vacuum, and there is something to be said for cultural influence. I think there's this kind of toxic recipe. Uh, you take someone who's unhinged enough or who lacks enough of a moral compass or conscience to actually go through with something like this, and you steep them in kind of toxic, racially divisive, uh, callous online culture or whatever, and this is what you get, apparently. All right, so I know it's hard to segue out of uh, something as serious as that last story, but um, there were a couple other things I wanted to touch on. Uh, one of them was I watched a debate that the Drunken Peasants hosted uh, a few nights ago. It was between Doug Tenaple and this popular... A YouTuber slash Twitch gamer named Destiny, um, who also happens to be a, a well-known debater. Uh, whatever you think about the guy, it's hard to argue that he's not intelligent or that he isn't quite good at holding his own in a debate. And you may recall that a while back I did this whole response video to a back and forth that one of the hosts of the Drunken Peasants, uh, Ben, had with Doug Tenaple. Doug Tenaple, once again, is the creator of Earthworm Gem, strangely enough. Uh, and uh, also, uh, I guess it would be safe to call him a creationist. Um, a, uh, he's a conservative Christian. And I was tempted to, you know, break out the screen capture tool and record myself responding to this whole debate again. Oh, man. But after being wiped from doing that, uh, that Crowley documentary, that almost two hour long documentary, I'm like, no way. I'll just kind of encapsulate, you know, my, my thoughts, give you guys a, a kind of brief synopsis of what I th thought about the debate. And when I say brief, uh, I mean brief for me, uh, which could still end up being quite meandering. And I want to say regarding Destiny, and it's funny because I think that guy, uh, Jesse Lee Peterson, made fun of Destiny for having an, uh, what he uh, called a stripper name. Um, but his real name, I forget his last name, I think his first name Stephen. I understand why a lot of people don't like him. He can be very kind of condescending and arrogant. I almost think sometimes it's intentional. It's his way of trolling. But when you really listen to his arguments, I mean, I rarely disagree with the guy's arguments. Um, I think the only time I really found myself in disbelief over what the guy was saying was, uh, I don't know if you guys remember Vegan Gains, this uh, vegetarian or vegan uh, YouTuber. And 
I actually always, I, I kind of liked vegan gains. And it's weird because I'm, I'm like a conflicted meat eater. I love animals. I know I'm hypocritical in a way for eating meat. And it is something that I feel conflicted about. And at the same time, I know that my moral hand-wringing doesn't help the animals who are being killed. You know, oh, what a nice guy. At least I feel bad about it, you know. But <laughs> uh, that does nothing to help the animals being killed. Um, and so I actually admire vegetarians and vegans. Uh, I seem to lack the self-discipline to actually be one myself, but I, I admire those who have the moral fortitude and the discipline to devote themselves to that lifestyle. Um, it's funny, sometimes vegan gains would get, get accused of being a psychopath regarding his, or a sociopath regarding his attitude towards his fellow humans, but uh, deeply um, protective of, uh, of, of non-human animals. Um, I personally, I always liked vegan gains. I know he's another divisive figure. And so my personal view on eating meat, it's kind of complicated because I think on the one hand, from a cold evolutionary biological perspective, you know, life feeds on life. Um, so in a sense, you can argue there's nothing more natural than animals feeding on other animals. Uh, but on the other hand, I think as human beings, we've achieved this level of self-awareness where we're able to reflect on our actions and make moral choices. And I think it's very hard to morally justify killing animals for food if you don't have to. And keep in mind, once again, I know personally uh, I'm something of a hypocrite because I had two, uh, two rotisserie chicken legs earlier today. And it's funny, you know, sometimes I think it's so ingrained in us, you know, if you're raised eating meat, that sometimes you could look at chicken legs and it's just, it's food on a plate. But other times you have one of those naked lunch type of moments where you see what's on the plate for what it is. Uh, the flesh and bone of what was once a, a living animal, a living, breathing creature. And I think there is something of a sliding scale, like the more sentient or aware a, a creature is, the more of a moral transgression you can argue it is to snuff its life out if you don't have to. Um, and nowadays, I mean, I think there are certain nutrients you can get from meat that maybe, maybe are hard to get elsewhere. But I think in this day and age, at least in the Western world, where supermarkets are overflowing with options, you can usually always find an alternative source to meat for whatever nutrients you need, even you know if it's another food source or if it's a supplement or something like that. So as much as I hate to admit it about myself, I probably do primarily eat meat for the taste and, and probably also it's a matter of habit too because you know I was raised eating meat 
you know, sinking your teeth into a hot rotisserie chicken is a completely different experience than eating, you know, a handful of carrots or whatever. Um, but then there's that philosophical or moral question, is it right? It's weird because I think it's absolutely natural, but natural doesn't make it morally right. Because if you're looking at, uh, and once again, I think there is kind of a sliding scale where uh, even, you know, I say lesser animals. And it's weird because me personally, there was definitely a time when I was younger, much younger, where I would have like stepped on an insect or something like that without thinking about it. Then like my late teens, I think, early 20s, I first started exploring Eastern religion and philosophy and even though, you know, I'm a skeptic, agnostic, atheist or whatever, a big takeaway that I kind of really incorporated into my being, my outlook on life from studying Buddhism and, and things like that was uh, this idea of having respect for all life. And so even though I know on like a sliding scale, I mean, I don't even know how aware, say, an ant is. I think according to conventional thought, you know, there there is that scale of kind of increasing sentience or awareness. You have, you know, single-celled organisms, you have insects, uh, amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals. Um, I think most of us just kind of assume that insects are almost like organic robots, that there might not be a lot going on there, you know. But even still, now, it's like, if I can help it, I won't even kill an insect, which brings up a, a strange kind of moral conundrum. I'll eat a chicken, but I won't step on an ant if I can help it, you know? <laughs> um, and that, of course, is, you know, joking aside because the chicken's being put to the context of food or sustenance or whatever. Although there certainly are places all over the world where certain types of insects are eaten also. But, you know, if I wouldn't kill... An insect, for the heck of it, I certainly wouldn't kill, you know, a bird or amphibian or, of course, a mammal for the heck of it either. If, if I came across a live chicken in real life, just like when I come across uh, geese trying to uh, cross the width of a parking lot or whatever, you know, I, I stop and I admire the geese and I wish I could get out and, you know, pet them or whatever. Um, or, you know, I'm looking out my window, I'll admire birds in the wild or whatever and uh wouldn't harm a feather on their heads or whatever you know and the same thing would go for a live chicken if i came across one and so with that being said you would probably assume that i hate hunters or hunting or whatever um and it's kind of complicated because me personally i have no desire to shoot an animal and i certainly find things like big game hunting detestable or killing for sport or killing for the heck of it, you know, reveling in it, uh, disgusting and, uh, morally abhorrent. But the idea of someone killing an animal for food, I actually think that's more noble in a way than someone going about it the way that I do going to the supermarket where, you know, you buy the chicken in a brightly colored, professionally designed box or whatever, you know, uh, where you can forget the horror of where it came from or whatever, uh, or that it was once a living being. Uh, someone else does the dirty work, you know, or the, the, the meat comes out 
all nicely packaged in shrink wrap with a, a sticker with all the appropriate info on it. And, and you can just, you know, it's, it's almost like you just take it for granted. Uh, the meat comes from the back room. Uh, the butcher brings it out. You don't actually think about the living animal being butchered, you know. You, you can kind of forget about that or halfway put it out of mind. Uh, so in a way, I think it's more noble for someone to do the dirty work themselves, to kill an animal and then eat it, you know, for sustenance or to feed their family. That's a lot more noble than just like gluttonously and thoughtlessly um, laying someone else do the dirty work and, and buying the meat yourself all nicely packaged in a supermarket. But one thing I find thoroughly disgusting and that I think should be thoroughly wiped out or abolished is fur farms. Um, really nightmare stuff. I've mentioned this on the show before, probably years ago. I can remember watching some documentary on it on TV and seeing live... Uh, I'm trying to think if they were minks or what they were, something in that family. Uh, these animals literally being skinned alive and then they're still living remains their skinless bodies being chucked into a pile where you can see their hot breath coming out you know meeting the cold air or whatever uh there is no excuse for that in this day and age where we have gore-tex and all sorts sorts of uh, synthetic clothing to keep us warm or whatever there's absolutely no justification for killing it, you know, skinning a live animal, um, completely barbaric and nightmarish. But anyway, yeah, what were we talking about? That, uh, debate between, uh, vegan gains and destiny. Yeah. So this was like the only time I've seen destiny debate something. Uh, I, to be honest, I've probably only seen a, a handful of his debates where I just really vehemently disagreed with him. So he was taking the stance that essentially, and you can go and watch that debate yourself if you think, you know, it sounds like I'm mischaracterizing him, uh, that it was better to be logically consistent than to err on the side of animal welfare. And so he thought it was so hypocritical for people to pick and choose which animals they thought deserved our protection and care and which animals it was all right to slaughter and eat, that in the name of logical consistency, he thought that there's no middle ground. It should either be one or the other extreme. Either all animals are looked at as nothing more than resources, which seemed to be his opinion, or all animals are equally deserving of protection and mercy, you know? And, and so all animal life being deserving of mercy and protection, this, of course, is, you know, the vegan or vegetarian stance. Usually, I think most people are at least in part vegan or vegetarian on moral grounds. Also, um, health concerns can play a big role, too. Um, but... Even Vegan Gains was taken aback because as a, as a vegan, as an animal lover, um, he realized that Destiny's only concern seemed to be this kind of cold devotion to intellectual or logical consistency. 
And it was an interesting debate in a number of ways. Uh, really interesting watching the dynamic between Vegan Gains and Destiny because Destiny was uncharacteristically kind of humble, almost meek, apologetic in a way because I think he realized how cold his point of view might come off as being. Um, and Vegan Gains was also going out of his way to be kind of friendly, trying not to be offensive. And yet, nevertheless, because of how taken aback he was by some of what Destiny was saying, he wondered out loud a number of times whether or not Destiny was a, a psychopath or a sociopath because of his seeming lack of concern for animal welfare. And so I think even though Vegan Gaines is, is a staunch vegan and animal rights activist, he kind of seemed to share my outlook that some mercy for animals is better than no mercy at all, or treating some animals well is better than not treating any animals well. And hopefully we can make progress to treating all animals better or whatever, you know? But it's certainly better than some nightmare world where you chuck your dog out the door or uh, boil your pet fish ju just out of a desire to be logically consistent or something. You know what I mean? Um, and Destiny's arguments are usually pretty, pretty strong, almost airtight. But there was one flawed argument he kept on making that he was using the analogy of slavery. It would be like hypocritically trying to argue that some types of slavery were better than others because uh, some slave masters are nice and let the slaves sleep indoors and make sure they have enough to eat, don't beat them, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, slavery is a detestable institution and no human being should be made to be a slave. But yeah, I think you'd certainly, at least on a sliding scale, have to agree that the quote-unquote nice slave master, the one that's not flogging the flesh off of his slaves' backs and being excessively cruel, is more preferable than the excessively cruel and barbaric slave master, you know? Um, slavery is still an abhorrent institution, but you'd still have to grudgingly admit that some mercy is better than no mercy at all, you know? And I think that came about where he was comparing, not that he seemed to care, but just he thought that factually owning a dog was like owning a slave. And I've heard that argument before. That's really weird. I'm like, give me a break. Most people think of dogs as a member of the family. They coddle them and dote on them like children um, and speaking as a dog owner, I can honestly say I don't keep my dog indoors because I want to keep her under my control because, you know, the house is her cage or prison. I keep my dog indoors because I love her and I don't want her to get splattered by a car or ripped apart by coyotes or bigger dogs. You know, <laughs> it's like my dog has it made, man. I wish I could just live like that, you know? You know, getting to sleep or lounge around all day, <laughs> different beds and toys all over the house. Uh, you know, someone preparing your food for you, waiting on your hand and foot. 
And so maybe, uh, you know, I'm not going to break out the screen capture tool or anything, but maybe I'll just try to play a little bit on my iPad so the sound quality will probably be lacking just a little bit so I can give you some idea of what uh, I was, I'm talking about. Have a, why don't you uh, talk about your side of the story? Maybe uh, go, go through some of the reasons why you think it might be uh, ethical or justifiable to eat meat right now sure. for you so the, basically the, the the way that i kind of set up my argument is um i i guess it's a little bit axiomatic and that i just define the fact that humans exist on a different level than animals and that gives us the right to do whatever to them basically the way that i, I kind of draw this distinction is that animals aren't really capable of reciprocating social value the same way that people are so for instance if we can have like a social standard of values amongst humans i can say um you know like we shouldn't kill each other we shouldn't steal from each other etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, other humans can respect that they can if they're too young to they can grow to respect it right they're capable of like intellectually recognizing that thing whereas animals for the most part are not except maybe with with very few exceptions although i'm not even sure how, how real that is so, for instance, I could respect the lion's right to life as much as possible or a cow's right to life or whatever, but these animals will never share that same respect with me and, to take it further, will also be constantly killing other animals in the wilderness as well. I can never hold them to any kind of moral or ethical standard. It's kind of like how I approach it. Okay, so I think I, I even discussed this a little bit with uh, No Bullshit and uh, the Worskis. Okay. Um, you're basically saying uh, social contracts mm-hmm. are what essentially make it right or wrong to kill an animal. So because an animal can't uh, form a social contract with you, therefore it's okay to kill an animal. Oof, yeah, that's it. Like th- that, that is your argument? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Okay, well. Um... Wow. So, yeah, that's what I was talking about. <laughs> basically, uh, from his cold kind of point of view we can do anything we want to animals because you know they don't have the same moral understanding that uh we do and so they can't enter into a moral contract with us doesn't matter that they're sentient and aware capable of experiencing fear pain and suffering uh, since they're not as advanced as us in certain ways, we can do whatever we want to them. Pretty damn cold. I think Destiny did handle himself a lot better in that recent debate with uh, Doug Tenable, however. And um, that debate with Vegan Gains, just to put into some perspective or whatever, uh, that was like two years ago. That was 2017. And it's weird, Doug Tenable, despite the fact that his worldview is pretty much diametrically opposed to my own, I usually say that, you know, I still find him to be this really kind of likable guy. Um, In that debate with Destiny, he comes off as more kind of unpleasant, curmudgeon-y, almost like this wannabe Ken Ham type. It's not really towards the end of the debate that he lets his guard down and starts acting like good old Doug. Yeah, and so once again, just because of how much making that Crowley documentary took out of me, I really didn't have it in me to do the whole screen capture tool and play a whole debate and respond to it. But I did take some notes while watching that uh, Destiny versus Tenable uh, debate, and I thought I would just kind of respond to some of the... uh, things that caught my interest. 
And my handwritten notes are actually kind of funny. Right off the bat, I have this kind of written Freudian slip. It says, adult converts, so jealous. I think what I actually meant was, I actually wrote the J. I think what I actually meant was, adult converts, so zealous. And what I meant by that, and I've seen this before, is that it seems like adults who adopt or embrace Christianity well, as adults, seem often a lot more zealous than um, perhaps someone that was raised Christian. And they seem to make a lot more assumptions, too. And of course, I'm speaking in generalities because there's plenty of people who are raised Christian who can be really damn zealous, you know, and uh, presumptuous as well. But it's funny, often you'll have these people, these kind of zealous adult converts, who will talk down to an atheist or a skeptic as if they don't know anything about, you know, Christianity or maybe, you know, they actually believe in God and it's just on some level they don't want to believe or whatever. And I always find that so insulting because when I look at my own personal story, I was born into a pretty devout Roman Catholic family. And I've talked about a lot on the show how losing my faith was actually a very painful and harrowing process. Uh, and I like to describe it as my reason inevitably eroded away my faith. And it was painful because there was a time when I could think of nothing more terrible or terrifying than the idea that there might not be a God or an afterlife. And there was a sense of betrayal and feeling like I was raised to believe all this stuff and this stuff was ingrained in me in a sense that became of the utmost importance, was at the center of my worldview. And then I started to realize, damn, you know, I'm getting the sinking feeling that this is all man-made, you know what I mean? But it was a very painful process. It, it's not that I just decided I didn't want to believe. It's actually, I wanted to believe and not believing seemed very scary, but my reason eroded my faith and despite how harrowing the experience was, my desire for truth still led me to the conclusion that, unfortunately, it looks like this stuff is man-made and there very well might not be a god or a higher power, you know? But there are a lot of these very kind of presumptuous adult converts who spew these kind of cliche anti-atheist talking points. Yeah, so I'm looking at my notes again. And oh yeah, there's one really blatant contradiction I saw on Doug's part, which coincidentally someone had also mentioned in the comments. Um, in his opening, Doug describes how he thinks Christianity is the most bitchin' story. Like he starts off by saying that, you know, just looking at the beauty of creation or however he worded it, he feels like there has to be something behind it. And, you know, I, I can't really argue too much with that. I, um, I have a lot more sympathy for people who maybe have this vague sense that there might be some kind of higher power out there. They have trouble wrapping their minds around the idea of everything coming from nothing. Um, although you can make arguments in that vein from a scientific perspective, uh, Lawrence Krauss and all that. Um, but I have, I have some sympathy for people looking at the wonder of creation 
and uh, and feeling at least tempted to come to the conclusion that maybe there's something behind all of it. Um, it's when people start to make very specific claims about who the deity is, uh, about whose holy book is right, uh, glossing over, you know, biblical contradictions and stuff like that. Um, but he goes on to say that basically he chose Christianity in a sense because it's the most bitchin' story. That's, you know, verbatim. And shortly after he ends up contradicting himself, uh, Destiny says, well, I feel like you probably chose Christianity because you like it, you know? And Doug says very kind of sternly, no, I don't like it. I don't like the idea that God would want to stone someone for, you know, I forget which exact prohibition he used, but, you know, for all those different, uh, the prohibitions in Leviticus, uh, the, I think Doug said shrimp for eating shrimp or something. Um, and he was saying all the reasons why there's plenty of things about the Judeo-Christian tradition that he doesn't or shouldn't like. And so there was a blatant contradiction. He said he chose Christianity because it was the most bitchin' story and it appealed to him. But then when he's called on that, he says, oh, wait, I, di I didn't say I like it. There's, there's lots of things I don't like. And so I think I don't even know if it was on a conscious level, but I think the reason why he was contradicting himself like that is that he didn't want to give ground and say he believes in Christianity just because he likes it and the story appeals to him. It's because it's true. And that he says at one point, he says, um, you know, Christianity appealed to me. And then when I found out it was true, I was like, holy crap, I'm all in. And I'm like, okay, got any evidence? How the heck did you find out that a specific religion was true? And I think he and Destiny actually did get into the idea of, you know, divine revelation or whatever. Because the only way you could really claim that other than some solid evidence they should be able to share with all of us is that it would have to be through some kind of revelation. And in that case, I mean, there's plenty of mentally ill, I'm not trying to be crude or sarcastic about it, there's plenty of mentally ill people who think they hear the voice of God. Um, and even if, you know, it's not something as severe as mental illness, like I, I have said multiple times on the show, I think human beings are wired with a kind of desire for the transcendent, for these experiences where we feel kind of plugged into the universe, where we feel kind of a part of something bigger than ourselves, where we experience the dissolution of the ego. But for all we know, you know, you could explain that stuff via brain chemistry. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, we know there's a direct correlation between chemistry and consciousness. I mean, pound a few beers, or if you really want to experience the dissolution of the ego, you know, eat some shrooms or whatever. Uh, our outlook on life and our consciousness, our perspective can be tremendously effect, uh, affected just by ingesting certain, you know, chemical compounds or whatever. And another thing that I called kind of BS on, and in fairness to Doug, this is going to sound really kind of patronizing. Maybe he just doesn't know that much about classical mythology or something. But he was talking about, it seems like, like myself, he's kind of a Joseph Campbell fan, and he was mentioning the hero's journey and how the story of Christ is kind of a perfect example of that hero's journey. 
Um, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, if you don't logically overanalyze the story of Christ, you know, <laughs> actually apply reason to it and see it as the story of someone sacrificing himself to himself to save us all from the curse of original sin, which he as God would have implemented in the first place. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But on an emotional level, just face value the story of Christ, it's kind of a moving story. Now, I think the exact, uh, the reason or purpose for, I almost said porpoise, for the crucifixion, resurrection, it can de depend on uh, the sect or denomination. Sometimes it has something to do with a ransom paid to the devil. There's a few different uh, takes on it. Not that any of them particularly make an abundance of sense when you apply reason to the story. And this idea that the story of Christ is the perfect example of, you know, the hero's journey or whatever, uh, that's pretty, well, it's firstly, that, that's subjective. I, I would say it's BS because you have uh, precedents like the story of Hercules or Heracles, which I always found a very compelling and moving story too. Yeah, there's all different examples of dying and rising gods of the so-called hero's journey to be found in antiquity. And I think I'm kind of running out of steam here, but I have like another page and a half of notes. Uh, there's stuff that Doug Tenaple is saying regarding evolution that'll make you want to pull your hair out. That seemed like they come right from Ken Ham's uh, playbook. But I'm probably going to call it quits for now. Uh, I didn't even plan on releasing another episode this week. Uh, so thanks, everyone, as always, for listening or viewing if you're watching the YouTube version. Um, you guys know the drill. You can like the show on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter. Um, I'm blanking out. What else? Well, I guess, I guess most importantly, if you want to support the show monetarily, you can do so by using the PayPal widget, the bottom of the Podbean page. There's all that alliteration. Or you can just go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help the show out for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time. Yes.